Hey, Reveal listeners, if you've been listening to American Rehab, you don't need me to tell you about the importance of great investigative journalism. It really helps us when our listeners rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It's so easy to do, and it helps others find our show. So we've got a bonus for the next 200 people who review us, Reveal Tote Bags. Like our t-shirts, they're simple and elegant, dark blue with the word facts written across the front in bold type. So here's what you got to do. Text the word REVIEW to 474747, and we'll give you instructions on how to get one while supplies last. Again, text the word REVIEW to 474747. You can text STOP at any time, and standard rates apply. And when you leave the review, if you want to tell them that Al Ledson is your all-time favorite host, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to be mad at that. Thank you so much for your review on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. When Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib wanted to go to Israel recently, President Trump urged Israel to keep them out. Here's Congresswoman Tlaib. It is unfortunate that Prime Minister Netanyahu has apparently taken a page out of Trump's book and even direction from Trump to deny this opportunity. Tlaib had planned to visit her grandmother in the West Bank. Israel eventually said she could make that trip, but she turned it down, saying the conditions of the offer were oppressive. Part of the reason for the flare-up? The congresswomen support a movement called BDS, which stands for Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions. Supporters say BDS is a nonviolent protest to pressure the Israeli government about its treatment of the Palestinian people. Those who oppose BDS believe its goal is to eliminate Israel as a Jewish state. Even though there are both Democrats and Republicans who oppose BDS, Trump is casting criticism of Israel as a partisan issue. And I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. Long before these controversies made their way to President Trump's Twitter feed, John Pluker, known as JP, was losing work over it. JP, who uses the pronoun they, is a translator and poet from Houston, Texas. Last year, a curator at the University of Houston's Art Museum got in touch with them about translating a Spanish essay into English. And he asked me if I would be willing to do it, and I said yes. The curator emailed JP the contract. So I got home, printed it out, was reading through it, and I found the, the clause. It's clause number 33, no boycott. Contractor certifies and verifies that it, one, does not boycott Israel, and two, will not boycott Israel during the term of this agreement. So under this clause, JP couldn't take the job because they boycott Zabra Hummus. It's made by a company with ties to the Israeli military. Refusing to buy this hummus is JP's way of supporting BDS. So JP didn't sign the contract. As a poet, I think very hard about how I put words together and what words I put out into the world and what those mean. And that was a definite combination of words that I was not willing to sign my name under. And that meant JP didn't get the job. The contract clause comes from a 2017 Texas law. It says contractors who get money from the state cannot boycott Israel. Today, at least 17 states have laws or executive orders like the one JP ran into. For JP, this isn't just an issue of whether it's right or wrong to boycott Israel. It goes to a more fundamental American right. So something like the First Amendment feels a little bit distant to me. But I definitely thought as I was reading it that I know that I have a right to hold my own beliefs. And this seemed like an infringement on that right. Today we ask, who has the right to boycott and who doesn't? Here's reporter Julia Simon with a story we first brought you back in March. If you want to understand the thinking behind Texas's anti-BDS law, a good place to start is in Washington, D.C., at the conference where some of the boycott movement's biggest critics gather every year. This is APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. 
a group founded to represent the state of Israel in America. This year's conference started with a giant sing-along, thousands of people waving their hands back and forth. Put your hands up! After the music, the speeches started. And there was a theme. I deeply oppose the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. It is wrong to boycott Israel. BDS is pure, unadulterated racism. Even before Israel came into existence, boycotts were used as a weapon of those who opposed the very existence of the Jewish state. That was New York Mayor Bill de Blasio, Vice President Mike Pence, Republican Senator Jim Risch, and Democratic Senator Charles Schumer. Senator Schumer went on to explain that in his view, the current boycotts of Israel are part of a long history. So from the moment Israel drew her first breath, until this very moment, Israel has long been threatened by boycott movements. And I will always stand with Israel against those who seek to do her harm by boycott or by any other means. Back in Texas, JP, the translator, does recognize the complexity of the issue. How that gets sorted through and how people within Israel and Palestine decide to deal with that, you know, I don't know all of the answers there, but I do know that those specific claims of the BDS movement are important to me. Important enough to do more than simply refusing to sign the contract, JP joined a lawsuit brought by the ACLU challenging the Texas law. Without knowing it, they were joining a legal fight about the right to boycott that goes back to a tiny town in Mississippi during the civil rights movement. Yes, we met in the movement, yes. We were comrades in the struggle. This is Carolyn and James Miller. They grew up in Port Gibson, Mississippi, met in the youth group of the NAACP. What, 17? I want to 17. If I was you four years older than I am, what are you talking about? As teenagers, Carolyn and James used to hang out at a local malt shop called Eddie Lee's. It was their spot. They would come, put a nickel in the jukebox, play some Curtis Mayfield, get a chili dog. Famous hot dogs and malts. Eddie Lee's was a safe haven for them. Even though the town was majority black, most of the stores were white-owned and openly discriminated against black people, especially the Piggly Wiggly supermarket. Carolyn remembers having to enter at the back of the store. As a little kid, that's just the way I thought it was. I didn't even realize there was a front door. Oh, yeah, that damn Piggly Wiggly. There were some rude white folks. This is Charles Evers, brother of the famous civil rights leader, Medgar Evers, who was assassinated in the 60s. Charles is 96 now. After his brother was killed, he became the head of the Mississippi NAACP. In Port Gibson in 1966, everything was segregated, not just the stores. And besides voter drives and lawsuits, one of the main tactics the NAACP had to fight Jim Crow was boycotts. Wherever black folk were, and not be treated, we boycotted them. We slept a boycott on whatever store they chose that they felt like should be shut down. So this was part of the movement? Yes, mm-hmm. it was a movement. Charles Evers and the NAACP leadership wanted more job opportunities, an end to segregation, and just basic respect for the black community. So they sent a letter to the local white leadership. When the white people didn't respond the Black community began a boycott. So in Port Gibson, how successful was the boycott? Were most of the Black folk participating? Oh, yes, indeed, yes. And then we began to open stores our own. Black-owned businesses? Yes. Black people were going to places like Eddie Lee's or even to neighboring towns for groceries, but not to white-owned stores which started shutting down. And then the white businesses did something that the Black residents didn't expect. In 1969, the local hardware store, the Piggly Wiggly, and many of the white businesses sued the NAACP and more than 100 individual Black residents of the county. 
suing us for asking for basic courtesies? It made no sense to me. That's Carolyn from the NAACP Youth Group. It didn't make sense to her husband, James, either. And a warning to listeners, there's an offensive term in this next part that some might not want to hear. You know, how can you sue somebody because they don't spend their money at your store when you call them nigger? And, I mean, and, and you don't give them any basic respect. The white businesses were asking for millions of dollars lost from the boycott, and they wanted the boycott to stop. The case went to the Mississippi courts, and they sided with the white businesses. The NAACP appealed, and the case went on for 13 years. In 1982, they finally ended up here. We'll hear arguments next in NAACP against Claiborne Hardware. The Supreme Court of the United States. Mr. Cutler, I think you may proceed whenever you're ready. Attorney Lloyd Cutler stepped up. He was representing the NAACP. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. He started by going way back to the Boston Tea Party. This nation was born out of a series of colonial boycotts against British merchants in support of petitions to the British King and Parliament for the redress of grievances. He said the Founding Fathers loved boycotts. And when they adopted the First Amendment, we submit, they could not possibly have intended to exclude from its protection the very means of petition that they themselves had employed. Cutler argued that from the beginning, the founders were talking about using the power of the pocketbook to express political views and make change. It is so wrapped into our history that we do not see how the First Amendment could be read to the contrary. And the Supreme Court agreed. In an 8-0 to decision, Thurgood Marshall recused himself because he used to represent the NAACP. The court said the right to peaceful boycott is protected by the First Amendment. The NAACP and the Black community of Port Gibson had won. Carolyn and James Miller helped organize a victory party. But not at Eddie Lee's. Eddie's didn't have what we needed to go That's celebrate. Nah, nah. <laughs> they wanted something a little stronger than a malt. It's been a long time, baby. We ain't doing malt no more. Now we're doing a little jack, you know? <laughs> Thirty-six years later, Carolyn's now a first-grade teacher. James works with juveniles in the justice system. And to be closer to their grandkids, they now live near Dallas, in Texas. I asked them if they'd heard of Texas's anti-boycott law. They haven't, so I tell them about the law and about JP. Damn, that, it's like an instant replay. It's like Port Gibson. It's the same thing It was happening in Port Gibson. I mean, how can that even be constitutional. I mean, come on. Well, there are definitely people who do think it's constitutional. I'm Eugene Kantorovich. He's a professor of constitutional law. At George Mason University Scalia School of Law. Eugene's Israeli-American. He also works for an Israeli think tank. And like a lot of people I met at the APAC conference, he sees the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement as discriminatory towards Israelis. So for the past few years, he's been working on a legal way to combat these boycotts. Eugene's actually been called the intellectual architect of America's anti-BDS laws because he's been helping elected officials all around the country make sure their laws pass a sort of free speech smell test. I uh, helped advise them on different paths to take, you know, a safe path to follow. And what do you mean by safe? It would be you know, widely acceptable, doesn't raise any constitutional questions. But as James Miller said, there are actually a lot of constitutional questions. And some of those questions go right back to Port Gibson, Mississippi, and the Supreme Court case, Claiborne Hardware versus NAACP. First of all, Claiborne Hardware involved a consumer boycott. That's the example of you buying Sabra Hummus. So none of the state laws involve consumer boycotts. Eugene's saying all these recent anti-boycott laws around America, they don't affect consumers, they affect companies. And JP, the translator, Eugene says, is a company, a sole proprietorship, a one-person translation business. According to Eugene, 
JP can boycott Israel as a consumer till the cows come home. But if JP's one-person company boycotts Sabra Hummus, the state won't contract with that company. Now, in practice, a poet has a very limited ability, a translator has a very limited ability providing translation services to actually be boycotting Israel. I bring up the fact that JP can't get paid. So doesn't the law have an impact on them? There's a difference between personal and, and corporate capacity. What I can tell you is these laws do not apply to individuals. They apply to businesses. That's not exactly right. This is Brian House, one of the lawyers on the ACLU team representing JP. Brian says under Texas law and most state laws, JP the consumer versus JP the company, it's all the same. The law says that there is no distinction between the sole proprietor as a business entity and the sole proprietor as an individual. So when a sole proprietor signs a form saying that as a contractor, they will not participate in boycotts of Israel, what they're certifying that is that neither as an individual nor as a business will they participate in a boycott of Israel at all for the duration of the contract. So I think this notion that you can cleanly separate a contractor's operations as a business entity versus as an individual, I don't think the law supports that. Some states around the U.S. are now changing their anti-boycott laws so that they don't affect sole proprietorships like JP and only affect companies with more than 10 people. But Brian says that even then, those companies still have the right to boycott. The Supreme Court has been extremely clear for several decades that businesses have the exact same First Amendment rights as individuals. Brian and Eugene don't just disagree on the details of the laws, but on the very reason for being of laws that ban boycotts against Israel. Eugene sees these laws as a way to protect Israelis and Jews from discrimination. And he notes that BDS singles out Israel when it doesn't treat other nations the same way. Why do people who say they care about human rights, why do they only target Israel? And it's a fair inference that this is a proxy for anti-Semitism. Brian says, yes, anti-Semitism is a problem. And he says the government can make laws to curb some types of discrimination. For example, with public accommodation laws, the government can say to a hotel, you must rent rooms to Israeli people. You can't exclude them. But if individuals are boycotting Israeli-owned hotels as a means of political expression, Brian says the government can't police that. As the 1982 Claiborne Hardware case showed, the government can't take away the right to use boycotts as a means of political speech. And, Brian says, the government definitely can't single out one type of boycotting in its laws. The fact that the government in these cases is only targeting boycotts of Israel and not even attempting to prevent discrimination in any other circumstance gives rise to a strong inference that the government's real interest is not in preventing discrimination, but rather in suppressing speech that it doesn't like. In July, the House overwhelmingly passed a resolution condemning the movement to boycott Israel, 398 to 17. Meanwhile, the Senate passed a stronger measure, sponsored by Senator Marco Rubio, allowing the states to continue their anti-boycott laws. I asked several lawmakers, including Senator Rubio, to comment for this story. They all declined or didn't get back to me. But there is a video of Senator Rubio defending his bill on the Senate floor. This is, doesn't in any way prevent anyone from participating and boycotting or divesting from Israel. All it says is that if you do, your clients in the form of state or local governments can boycott or divest you in return. Free speech is a two-way street. But Dima Hedidi, a civil rights and liberties attorney, says free speech actually isn't a two-way street. That misses the entire purpose of the First Amendment, which is to protect us against government interference in our First Amendment activities. Dima's a cooperating attorney with the Center for Constitutional Rights and the director of Palestine Legal, an organization that tracks anti-BDS legislation. And she says people need to remember the First Amendment starts with Congress shall make no law. The founding fathers were saying the government isn't allowed to retaliate against speech it doesn't like. Because today, the government doesn't like speech against Israel. But what about tomorrow? 
what will be next? If this boycott is unpalatable to our elected representatives, what is the next one that will be? You can imagine that they don't approve of a lot of boycotts and activism that happens. So that's really important to understand that punishing one kind of boycott really affects all of our First Amendment rights. As for JP, the translator in Texas, last fall, a university offered them a teaching job. I just waited to see the contract, and I got it, and it had the same language. Another contract JP couldn't sign, another job they couldn't take. I've definitely lost money already. I mean, I definitely am looking forward to the day that this law no longer exists and that I can go back to contracting not only with U of H, but also with other universities and other institutions around the state. In March, the ACLU took JP's case before a federal judge in Texas— The judge ruled that the anti-boycott law is unconstitutional. The state is appealing that decision. Thanks to Julia Simon for that story. Brian House and the ACLU are also working on lawsuits challenging anti-boycott laws in Arizona and Arkansas. We should also mention that Brian is part of a team representing Reveal in an unrelated case. Julia's story was about laws that could restrict people from taking part in a boycott. But what do you do if you live someplace where it's nearly impossible to find a way around buying stuff from the people you want to boycott? That's next on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Reveal is brought to you by the University of Virginia and the Sacred and Profane podcast. We often hear it's not polite to bring up religion, but we lose so much when we don't talk about religion. Sacred and Profane is a podcast that isn't afraid to tackle religion. Next up, the longstanding problem of discriminatory policing against religious and racial minorities in France. Sacred and Profane is produced by the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Catch season two wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for Reveal comes from Blinds.com. Transforming your home into even more of a sanctuary is easy and affordable with Blinds.com. They make it simple to shop top-quality blinds, shades, and interior shutters from home with easy online ordering and free shipping. Blinds.com has helped millions of homeowners through the process, and they guarantee the perfect fit whether you DIY or have them install everything for you. Go right now and see how much you can save at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Ledson. The idea of boycotting Israel didn't start in the United States. It started with Palestinians. Our families, we always used to try to get the local stuff, vegetables, food, drink, whatever. So it's in our blood. Samir Krejci is a 35-year-old Palestinian entrepreneur. He says this idea he was raised on, boycotting Israel, is not an easy thing to do when you're living in a place like his hometown, Ramallah. It's a town of about 35,000 people in the occupied West Bank, which is controlled by both the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli military. Samir walks up the narrow sidewalks of Ramallah's steep hills towards a vegetable shop and greets the owner out front. He points to vegetables inside the store. See it? Yeah. The cucumbers are Israeli. This is Israeli potato. The apple, you can see the logo, it's in Hebrew. The carrots are Israeli carrots, as you see. Uh, it's produced and packed in Israel. Most of the produce in this small shop comes from Israel. That's sad. Sad, Samir says, because when Palestinians buy Israeli-grown cucumbers to chop into their salads, they're supporting businesses that feed the economy of the Israeli state. In Samir's thinking, a military state, snipers, jeeps, an army of nearly 200,000 soldiers, forces that Samir sees in his everyday life, during military raids on his hometown or when he crosses a checkpoint to leave or enter Ramallah, he remembers the first time he encountered Israeli soldiers. He was just five years old. Yes, actually, I was sleeping, and the Israeli army broke into the house, and then uh, they took my father. Of course, naturally, I woke up because they were really loud. 
Samir's father, a journalist, was arrested and imprisoned for half a year. And it wasn't just his father. Samir has watched his friends and relatives get detained by Israeli soldiers his whole life. And his whole life, he's been looking for the right way to take a stand. It wasn't until his 20s that he found it. And the idea came from an unlikely place. Producer Shana Sheely takes us there. It was a chilly spring night in 2012 in the Palestinian town of Jericho. Samir was at a party with some buddies. We were at the backyard of a friend. There was a lot of almonds, trees around us, and a few beers. These were old friends, close friends. They hung out a lot. Sometimes watching a movie, sometimes going for a hike. And whenever they got together, the topic of conversation almost always turned to one thing. Starting an entirely, purely Palestinian business. Every idea crossed our mind, like opening a bar or even creating beer. In their minds, giving Palestinians the option to buy homegrown products instead of Israeli ones would be a step towards self-sufficiency. Right now, a majority of Palestinian imports come from Israel, as do many resources like water and electricity. Samir and his friends wanted to do something to show independence from the Israeli economy. And this one night, we were having a barbecue. A vegan friend of us, she she just left like 10 centimeters for us to, to grill our meat. And we were like, yeah, you can't do that. With your vegetables, you just stuck everything on this grill. And then she went on one of those vegan rants some of you might have heard before. How healthy uh, this mushroom is and the fiber and the protein in this mushroom. And she was explaining to us and we listened to her and we were fascinated by this idea of of this creature, the mushroom. When Samir saw that his vegan friend's mushrooms were from Israel, inspiration struck. Then we decided that this is it. Mushroom. Let's do mushroom. Samir and his three friends decided they'd start the first Palestinian mushroom farm. Fine idea, except they didn't have a clue about this creature, the mushroom. Samir was in his late 20s. He had a good office job at a development NGO. But he threw himself wholeheartedly into this new idea. Yes, I quit a good job to start a mushroom farm uh, because I felt that I have to do it. To help me understand why he would drop almost everything to get this business started, Samir tells me a story from his childhood. It was in the late 80s, around the same time his dad was arrested during the first Palestinian uprising, or intifada, against the Israeli occupation. Palestinians collectively decided to boycott Israeli institutions, taxes, goods. They threw stones at Israeli delivery trucks and military tanks. There was a spark of revolution in the air. Samir was in a taxi with his family on their way to a wedding when a group of men wearing woven scarves called kafiyas halted the car to a stop. They asked the taxi driver, what do you smoke? And he said, uh, I smoke Times. Times is an Israeli brand of cigarettes. The men continued with more questions. Don't you feel ashamed of yourself that you are smoking the cigarette of those who are arresting you and of those who are killing your sons and daughters for those who claim that you do, you do not exist? The men threw away the driver's pack and handed him a new one of Palestinian-made cigarettes. These two strange masked men, they had an alternative in their hands. Some 25 years later... Samir now saw himself as one of those kafia-wearing guys. Instead of a cigarette alternative, he'd provide mushrooms. I meet Mahmoud Khail, one of Samir's partners, at the mushroom farm, off a dirt road with palm trees all around. He's wearing sweats and a v-neck, smoking a cigarette. About a year after that fateful barbecue, the guys found this piece of land in Jericho, the same town where they came up with the idea. 
They named the business Amoro Farms, from the Amorites, who lived on this land in ancient times. And they taught themselves how to grow mushrooms. I usually like to start the tour from outside. Amoro Farms looks more like a row of white, double-wide trailers than a farm. Mushrooms are grown in insulated rooms, carefully controlled for humidity and temperature. Mahmoud unlatches a first door into a hallway, then a second into a small empty room, and a third into a dark sort of mushroom hall. All these separate entrances are to block outside air and to create a clean, sterile environment for the mushrooms. It's so cool to be in this room. It's like a big mold room. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Mahmoud says the materials for growing mushrooms aren't available in the Palestinian territories. So, since they wanted to avoid Israeli goods, the mushroom guys imported stuff from all over the world. Air condition, for example, comes from China. The exhaust fans, for example, to control the CO2 levels come from Spain. The electric uh, comes from France, for example, Schneider and Germany. Mahmoud shines a flashlight onto flat shelves of compost stacked like bunk beds. The shelves are completely covered with thready webs of white fungus. I really like uh, the shape of uh, the mycelium. It's really trippy. (laughs) It's like a spider net, but it's really, really, really uh, white. And it goes into all directions. um, And you feel like it's infinite, that it's never-ending. In October 2014, about half a year after they bought the piece of land in Jericho, Samir, Mahmoud, and their partners harvested their first mushrooms and brought them to market. Samir says seeing the mushrooms on store shelves was like showing off his babies. I'll never forget that day. I saw, I saw, I saw a mushroom in the shop, and I really felt proud. Within two months, mushrooms were flying off the shelves. Amoro sold 22 tons of mushrooms in the first year, then 25 tons in the second. They hired 12 pickers, all local women, and fans posted mushroom recipes on the Amoro Farms Facebook page. And then, in January 2016, an unexpected hitch. Their compost, which they'd been importing from the Netherlands, didn't arrive. The guys waited. And after a month, Samir hired a lawyer to go to the Israeli port of Ashdod, where goods from Europe come into the country. Israeli Customs was holding the compost there, but the lawyer couldn't figure out exactly why. There isn't any former uh, response of why our product is being delayed on the port. Samir says the compost was held for 90 days before it was released. Their next shipment was delayed for 100 days, and the next for nearly four months. And for each day the compost was held, Amoro had to pay a fine to the Israeli port for storage. Samir still doesn't have answers about why the Israelis held his compost. I also tried to find out why they held up the shipments, but I didn't get much further. One possibility is an order from the Minister of Defense regarding certain materials like fertilizers that can be used to make explosives. Samir says he suspects the compost was held because authorities saw his business as a threat to the Israeli mushroom industry and wanted to shut Amoro down. Eventually, Amoro Farms ran out of money. They had to close their doors. Samir says he felt his heart break when he saw the empty mushroom hall. It is one of the saddest images in my life, even much more than the bloodiest images. But like you're looking at an empty heart, like uh, like a skeleton. Dozens of Palestinians wrote to him and posted on the Amoro Facebook page. Samir reads some of those messages. Someone is asking, I can't find your mushroom, we miss you. Someone wrote, good luck. And someone replied, your mushroom has a great place in our heart. The farm was closed for about a year, but they eventually came up with a legal workaround with help from a Palestinian man living in Israel. Because he has Israeli citizenship, he can import the compost himself, then deliver it to Jericho, 
as an Israeli company. That was the solution. He has all the papers that uh, I'm sending this product from this company to that company. This new method still involves some risk. But Amora was able to get back on its feet again in the spring of 2018. Though the guys are happy to once again be feeding mushroom-loving Palestinians, they're pragmatic about compromises they have to make. Back at the farm, I point something out to Mahmoud. So I see, like, those labels on the walls have, like, Hebrew writing on them. Right. This structure comes from Israel. This structure. So, so again, we don't have a company that produces these panels. Uh, unfortunately, in Palestine, we don't have the capacity to produce those. Yeah. Mahmoud tells me it's sort of impossible to completely cut out Israel. Uh, at the end of the day, what the electricity that we use to run this farm comes from Israel. But again, uh, can you substitute things or you cannot? This is the issue. I ask Zamir where he draws the line for himself. You could imagine a moving line. I, I feel I have the privilege to draw it and to raise it as I see it suitable and necessary. Samir uses Israeli medicine and even has guilty pleasure Israeli snack foods like bamba, the peanut butter version of Cheetos. He simply can't draw a single line separating himself from the Israeli economy, no matter how much he may want to. And one more question. Um... Do you think of yourself as someone who is boycotting Israel? Can I answer that question by a question? Sure. Okay. Can you can you interact in a normal way with someone who beats you, harass you on daily basis? No, you can't. So, for me it's it is beyond boycotting. For Samir, it's about the act of creating, about building a Palestinian economy rather than supporting an Israeli one. Thanks to reporter Shane Ashili for that story. Whether they know it or not, Samir and anyone who engages in a boycott owes a debt to Ireland and to the protest that gave boycotting its name. That's coming up on Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, this is Reveal. I'm Al Letson. As we were working on this show about boycotts, we started to wonder where the word boycott actually comes from. So we looked into it. And it turns out it goes back to one man, Charles Cunningham Boycott, a.k.a. Captain Boycott. He was an Englishman living in Ireland in the late 1800s when all of Ireland was ruled by England. And the Irish countryside was divided in a way that was almost medieval. You had poor peasants who lived off the land and then you had rich landlords who owned the land. Captain Boycott was right in the middle. Reveal reporter Stan Alcorn has his story, which we originally ran back in March. Captain Boycott was barely a captain. His parents bought him a spot in the British Army, and he quit after just two years at age 20. He spent the rest of his life farming, horse racing, and doing the job that would make him famous collecting rent as the agent for a landlord who owned 2,000 acres on Ireland's west coast. I wanted to see that land, the stone houses and boggy fields for myself. But my boss wouldn't pay for the plane ticket. So instead, I started calling up people who live there. And I found a lot of them know the story of Captain Boycott as part of their family history. Hi, it's Elaine. How you doing? Elaine Nocton's ancestors were farmers who paid rent to Boycott. My grandmother used to always say there were hard times, but nobody knew any better because everything was very equal back then. If you were running short of milk one day, you knew you could go to the neighbour and you'd be given milk. And in exchange, you'd give back eggs the following day. Everybody wanted the same thing for everybody else. They just wanted a fair rent. 
But what seemed fair to farmers depended on the harvest. And in 1879, the potato crop was the worst in a decade. There were reports of starvation and a fear that the Great Famine that had killed one out of every 10 people in Ireland just a generation earlier was about to repeat itself. So Captain Boycott's tenants got together and sent a message to his mansion, the Loch Mask House, asking him to lower the rent by 25%. Boycott said no. And he had the local process server, that's basically the official court messenger, start serving them with eviction papers. He went house to house with an armed guard of 18 police officers. What seemed to have kicked it off was when they tried to deliver an eviction, or they did deliver an eviction notice to um, a widow. According to the local paper, the widow told them, you'll not serve my house as long as I have life in my body. The story goes that she had a red flag, and once she raised the red flag, all the women and children came out from behind the bushes and basically just started pelting the process server with stones and kind of drove them the whole way back to that mask house. The next day, a crowd of maybe a hundred men, women, and children swarmed a hill near Boycott's house. It looked like things were about to get violent. Yeah, and from my understanding, I think Father John O'Malley kept control on that. If anyone could control the crowd, it was Father John O'Malley, the parish priest whose influence you can see in the rough limestone church he built where today Father Paddy Gilligan has taken his place. On the wall next to the altar, there's a small bronze plaque for Father John O'Malley. Very simple. He will be forever remembered as a faithful priest and defender of his people's rights in very hard and trying times. And I'd say that uh, that was certainly uh, the the mood of the people, you know. Can you compare... uh, the role that, that he played in the community at that time with the role that you play now? Well, it would be to contrast rather than compare, I think. While Father Gilligan speaks gently about building community, Father O'Malley gave fiery speeches warning that landlords wanted to annihilate the Irish people. He was the local leader of a political movement sweeping the Irish countryside called the Land League that saw the fight for the rights of Irish farmers as the first battle in a war for Irish independence. But he didn't want it to be an actual war. Around that time, there were quite a number of incidents where the agents of landlords who were trying to collect rent were actually murdered. So he tried to persuade them to make their protest, but to make it peacefully. And he had a specific protest tactic in mind, one that had just been laid out in a speech by the president of the Land League, Charles Stuart Parnell. His speech was reenacted in the 1947 movie Captain Boycott. At the speech's climax, Parnell asked the crowd, if a landlord evicts a farmer, what should you do if another farmer helps the landlord? by taking over the evicted man's lease. I think I heard somebody say shoot him. There is a very much better way, a more Christian and charitable way. You must shun him! Shun him! On the roadside when you meet him, in the streets of the town, in the shop, on the fair green and in the marketplace, and even in the house of worship, by isolating him from his kind as if he were a leper of old. If you do this, you may depend upon it. There will be no man so lost to shame as to dare to face the cold, accusing finger of public scorn. Scorn and shunning. These were the weapons of the Land League. And Father O'Malley helped convince his parish to use them on Captain Boycott. Apparently, he'd be walking down the street and he'd be shunned. Elaine knocked in again. No one spoke to him. The postman refused to deliver his post. Every single person participated in it. Like, he was completely left on his own down there. The blacksmith wouldn't shoe his horses. The baker wouldn't bake him bread. Not only did the farmers refuse to pay him rent for their land, they wouldn't do any work on Captain Boycott's farm which left him with acres of potatoes and turnips that were about to rot in the ground. Until 
In a plot twist in the movie version that also really happened, Boycott wrote a letter to the Times of London, where he found a more sympathetic English audience. Extraordinary letter here, Humphrey. Fellow called Boycott out in the west of Ireland. Can't get his harvest in. Seems his laborers have left him in a body. As Boycott's story spread, 50 British loyalists from Northern Ireland volunteered to come help with the harvest. And the British government chipped in with an armed guard of hundreds of British soldiers. Didn't I tell you the landlords would fight to the last drop of the other fellow's sweat? Reporters came from all across Europe to watch them dig up Captain Boycott's tubers. The so-called Boycott Relief Expedition worked, but it was expensive. It made no sense. Like, it's reported to have cost £5,000 to save 500 euros worth of crop. Boycott couldn't afford another harvest like that. So when the army left, so did he. The shunning had worked. It was quite simple, but effective. As Captain Boycott fled, the word boycott was just getting started. Credit for coining it typically goes to two men, Father John O'Malley and James Redpath, an American journalist. According to local lore, it happened a short, muddy walk from Father O'Malley's church in a house that's now a stone ruin covered in lichen and ivy. Stoop down when you come in. Joe Graney was born in this house, as was his mother and his grandmother and his great-grandmother. Now we're going into what used to be the kitchen. And he believes a great-aunt of his rented a room to Father O'Malley. And right sitting here in this room, inside that window is where Father O'Malley would sleep. Because that was the bedroom when I was a child where my grandfather and grandmother would sleep. And left of that was a little pantry, we called it, where we left a bag of flour and old wet coats and the dog slept in it, etc., etc. And if you look, there's one stone there at an angle with a lovely little turn on it. That is most likely the stone they were sitting at the day that Father O'Malley used the word. In Joe's telling, Father O'Malley was talking to the journalist about another landlord, a man named Brown. Let's get brown. Let's do what they did to boycott. Let's do a boycott job on this brown. That's what we're going to do. We're going to boycott brown. That's the stone that they were most likely sitting at, exactly at that fireplace in there. Boycott was catchy. And Father O'Malley saw that by putting it in the newspaper, James Redpath, the journalist, could help it catch on all across the country, like a 19th century hashtag. He saw him as the modern-day Twitter or the then... Facebook, where I can get our message from this little village to the world. A year later, there had been more than a thousand recorded cases of boycotting in Ireland, with tenant farmers winning millions of pounds in lower rents. A year after that, the word boycott was in the dictionary in the U.S., and it was being used in France, the Netherlands, Germany, and Russia. In the place the word was born, people are proud of this history. But not everyone. I asked local producer Dermot McIntyre to knock on the door of Captain Boycott's old mansion. Hello there. I'm with uh, an American radio station. The current occupant is the grandson of the man who moved in after Captain Boycott left. His name's John Daly. He's nearly 90. And he has a dissenting view on Boycott. They say he was a good fella and a jolly fella. I have to say, you're the first person I've ever met who said that he seems to have been a nice guy. Because the Just story, people, you know, that yeah, he wanted yeah, to beat you with his... I remember going to school and the first thing the teacher was saying, Boycott was a bad man, he wanted the money from the tenants and he was this and he was nothing. But he was, he was an Adolf Hitler, according to the teacher, you know. But I couldn't see that at all, like. Could happen to anyone today. To John Daly, Captain Boycott was just doing his job, working for the landlord. Was it fair what happened to him? Well, I wouldn't think it was fair, but it was, the, if you like, a sign of the times. That's the way it was. And we were taking over. The mob, mob law, if you like. This view, that boycotts are a threat to the rule of law, was there from the beginning. Britain's prime minister at the time called boycotting intimidation for the purposes of destroying the private liberty of choice by fear of ruin and starvation. And it wasn't just the English. 
the first judicial opinion in the U.S. to use the word boycott in 1887, upheld a charge of criminal conspiracy for passing out leaflets for a boycott against a publishing company. The judge called the boycott a power outside of law and said that, like the taste of human blood by tigers, it creates an unappeasable appetite for more. Part of why the original Irish boycotters are mostly seen as heroes today and not bloodthirsty tigers is that mob law eventually became actual law. A few decades later, Ireland won its independence, and the new Irish state took farmland away from absentee landlords and gave it to their old tenants. The few acres of the old boycott estate went to Elaine Nocton's family. So my mother's family would own some of it, and then the majority of the land then around it is all owned by neighbours. Elaine is proud of her ancestors, but she's never taken part in a boycott herself. I haven't had need to yet, so <laughs> not yet. What do you think it would take uh, to, to make you join in a boycott? What would it take? Well, I suppose if it was coming to a point where I was losing my home and people around me were losing their homes, then certainly, yeah, you can imagine starting some kind of a, a revolution or a boycott or whatever. I just don't think you'd know where to start today. People are losing their homes today. It's just that it's often some international bank doing the evicting. And what do they care if one small town shuns them or stops paying rent? But then again, small town shunning, that's not what most boycotts are today. Instead, they're people all over the world making individual gestures of solidarity that they hope add up to something greater. The word's the same, but the boycott, like the world, has changed. That was Reveal's Stan Alcorn, with help from producer Dermot McIntyre in Ireland. Jen Sheehan edited this week's show. Our lead producer was Stan Alcorn. Thanks also to Oye for the Supreme Court archival audio. Also, thanks to Ramia Krishna, Maria LaHood, Amanda Shaynor, Emily Crosby, and Brian Casey. Our production manager is Mwende Inahosa. Original score and sound designed by the dynamic duo, Jay Breezy, Mr. Jim Briggs, and Fernando, my man, Yo Aruda. They had help this week from Catherine Raimondo and Caitlin Benz. Our CEO is Krista Scharfenberg. Matt Thompson is our editor-in-chief. Taki Telenitis is our senior supervising editor. Our executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Our theme music is by Camarado, Lightning. Support for Reveals provided by the Reva and David Logan Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Democracy Fund, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation. Reveal is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. I'm Al Letson, And remember, there is always more to the story. <laughs>